Uh, Please turn with me back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis 33. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to ask you to imagine what you might feel like if you knew you'd done something terribly wrong to a person. And that you also knew that he or she was very angry. Very angry, like retaliation angry. What would our instinct be? What would our instinct be? Uh, Hopefully, by God's grace, even perhaps against our instinct, we would want to go make things right. We'd want to confess our wrong and ask for forgiveness. If the wrong we did cost them something, we'd want to make that right. We'd, We'd even proactively seek to make that right. In 2 Corinthians 7, we're told that godly grief produces in us an earnest desire, a zeal to clear ourselves, to resolve the matter, even to accept the consequences. A godly grief results in us being more upset about the wrong we did and the way we hurt others, the way we sinned against the Lord, whereas a worldly grief would result in us being more upset about the consequences, how the consequences of our wrong uh, might negatively affect us. Which means we would be more upset about being caught. Maybe try to hide what we did the best we could, uh, even through making excuses or or blaming others. We'd be more upset about having to face the person and, and hearing them acknowledge our wrongdoing for them to know that we were wrong. Even refusing to go to them at the possibility they may not respond the way we would want them to or the way they should. Holding them to a standard. We would think that the most important task and the after effects of our actions was self-preservation. Ironically, it was the same selfishness that gave us the reasoning we needed to do the sinful act in the first place. We know it would certainly take an act of God's grace to turn us from our selfish thinking to selfless thinking. Selfless thinking. And the forgiveness we know God affords us through the shed blood of Christ would make Jesus all the more sweet to us. Does that make sense? The, the more we understand and realize that we are sinners, that we have done wrong, then the blood of the cross is that much more beautiful. And our love for him grows all the more. And the desire we would have to see God honored and, and the soul we sinned against reconciled, it would compel us to turn and to act in love. In short, we would do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God. Micah 6, 8. And that verse, that verse can take on a different feel when we remember that there are times when we need justice. And with that, that our justification before God is found through the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ at the cross. Praise God for his glorious grace. And that's how we would hope to respond. Uh, but what if the person you wronged was a big, strong dude? Uh, one who was prone to anger, quick to speak, slow to listen. And maybe instead of quick to speak, he was quick to violence. Or like Jacob, you were well aware of the fact that they'd even threatened you harm. Esau had declared that as soon as their father Isaac was dead, Jacob would die. And what did Jacob do? He took off. He 
ran, right? He left the country. And he did so even at the instruction of his mother. Jacob was counseled to run. But now as we work through Genesis 32 and today Genesis 33, 20 years have passed. And God had been working on Jacob, hasn't he? God chose to shower his grace on Jacob. Jacob had been chosen to receive the blessing. Jacob and his descendants, the nation of Israel, would inherit the promised land. God gave these promises, this covenant, to Jacob. And the God who always wins, the undefeated champion of the universe, Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. He was going to bring this victory about. God was working on Jacob. Jacob the trickster has been learning and growing by the grace of God over the last 20 years. Even through the trickery of Uncle Laban. Even through those spotted and speckled sheep and goats. God was using all things to work together this good in Jacob's life. And God was teaching Jacob. He was shaping him and conforming him progressively. That's how we grow, isn't it? Progressively, bit by bit. So now 20 years later, and it's time for Jacob to go home, to go to the promised land. But first, there's something that needs to be done first. Jacob needs to make things right with Esau. It was time to stop running, to stop hiding, time to stop living under the burden of the lies and the deception. Uh, Jacob, now much less a trickster than he used to be, he needs to deal with Esau. And I remember back in chapter 32, a little recap from two weeks ago, in Genesis 32, as Jacob was approaching the land and readying himself to go to Esau, God allowed him to see those angel armies again. Uh, the God who had promised to be with Jacob was still there. God was with him as he had promised. And then remember, Jacob sent servants to Esau to let him know that he's coming and that he was coming to seek his favor, to ask for grace from Esau to, to make things right. And Esau, hearing of his brother's arrival, his response, he's coming with 400 men. And this was the size of a militia. It was a small army. Esau remembered. Esau was coming for his revenge. Every indication from the previous chapter is that Esau was coming for a battle. And so Jacob hears this and he divides the camp into two camps and wants at least, hopefully, to save at least half of the people, half of the possessions. And he prays. He prays. And Jacob gives instructions to, to spread out his camp his camps, and he gives gifts to Esau one by one, spread out over time, hoping to get on his good side, to soften him, soften him up a little bit and, and to prove that he wants to make things right. And then on that last night, the night before Jacob expects to have a battle for the ages against his brother, he wrestles with someone else instead through the whole night until the beginning of dawn the next morning. And in that wrestling, you know, you know, God wasn't actually having a hard time defeating Jacob, right? That wrestling match wasn't an even match. <laughs> in that wrestling, 
God graciously, graciously allows Jacob to wrestle that whole night and wear himself out. And God graciously dislocated Jacob's hip with that single touch. These were acts of God's grace so that Jacob would learn something very important. God had been Jacob's strength all along. And all of Jacob's striving, all of his deceit for his own selfish gain, he wasn't fighting for, he wasn't accomplishing his own gain. He had been fighting, striving, wrestling with God the whole time. And yet, because God had given him favor, grace, Jacob would prevail. God had a plan that would prevail. And Jacob was a part of that plan. God's plan. It wasn't Jacob's plan. Jacob didn't make his own plan and then enlist God to make sure he won. This was God's plan. And Jacob was in it. And it was going to succeed. So Jacob didn't need strong legs and a good night's rest to be ready for Esau the next day. He needed to submit to God, to God's will, and trust him completely. He needed to get with God's program because God's program is going to succeed. And we know this is true still today. God's program is going to succeed. Christians, we are on the victory side. And God didn't need Jacob's strength and cunning to get him home safely. God wasn't having a wrestling match with him to, to beef up his muscles and going through a training regiment so that Jacob would have what it took. He's wiping him out so he didn't have what it took. God had brought Jacob this far in spite of Jacob's wrestlings, in spite of his misused strength and deceitful schemes, because God always wins. And in order to help Jacob remember this, God gave him a new name. At the end of chapter 32, Jacob the trickster became Israel. God fights. And now as the new day fully dawns, it's time for these brothers to meet. So let's see what happens. Genesis 33, verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. We get to see through Jacob's eyes. And behold, Esau was coming. And 400 men with him. So here comes that army. And so Jacob divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. And then, kind of like yesterday, or uh, the two weeks ago for us, but yesterday for Jacob, those spaced out gifts and the servants kind of come in at Esau bit after bit after bit to wear him down in the same vein. He divided those children, put the servants, their children first, and then uh, he put the servants, verse 2, sorry, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he himself, it says in verse 3 though, went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Uh, The first thing we might notice in this passage, Jacob initially sets his family up, like we said, to send them out in ranks. And they're ranked according to their mothers. You notice that? So so who was sent out first? Bilhah and Zilpah and their kids. And then Leah and hers. And then last, and, and according to how things had been set up so far in the last chapter, the ones closest to Jacob in the rear where it was safest, that's where Rachel and Joseph are. 
That's where they are. Do you think, perhaps, this might have added to the dislike between the wives? And do you think, perhaps, also with the children? The parents playing favorites didn't go very well in the last generation between Jacob and Esau, and yet here in the next generation we see it all over again on full display in a moment of crisis, in this moment of fear amongst Jacob's children. So there's no doubt at this point, if they didn't already know, which I think they did, but at this point for sure all these boys, they know who is daddy's favorite. And there would be consequences later. Uh, However, on the good side, remember Jacob is growing, okay? On the good side, where on the previous day, Jacob would have been all too ready to send everyone else ahead of him to protect himself. What does the beginning of verse 3 say he did? He himself went on before them. Jacob is still struggling, uh, but by God's grace, just like the rest of us who've put our faith in Christ alone, he's growing. And Jacob goes out now ahead of his family to meet Esau. As he approaches his brother, every so often along the way, as they get closer and closer together, Jacob bowed down, and the word here means he bowed down prostrate, all the way down flat to the ground. And then he'd get up again and walk a little bit further, and he'd do it again, all the way down, all the way up. And he did this seven times. Uh, This was a greeting expected for kings, for the pharaohs. And it was probably not very pretty. If you think about what this would have looked like, considering the pain that Jacob was in as he limped along, I just imagine Esau seeing his brother struggling in the distance as he comes closer and closer to, to get himself down on the ground. And then to slowly get himself back up again to show his respect. I would imagine Esau would have been very well aware that Jacob was in no shape for a fight by the time they finally met. Another interesting thing to note here, uh, back in chapter 27, when Isaac was giving the blessing to Jacob, unbeknownst to him, remember he thought he was talking to Esau, Isaac declared, your mother's sons will bow down to you. And so in a very real way here, Jacob is acknowledging to Esau that this blessing had been intended for him. In his actions, Jacob is admitting his deception. And now by God's grace, either the night before, or I I would tend to think even in this moment, by God's grace, a change occurs in Esau's heart. In verse 4, Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him. And the Hebrew word for embrace is almost identical to the word for wrestle, <laughs> to strive. And so if you're reading this in the Hebrew and you're just reading through Breeze and real fast through this narrative, you would almost like do a double take. You might be thinking as you read, did I read that right? Did Esau run to him and, and start wrestling? And you look back and you look at all the letters and like, no, it says they hugged it out. <laughs> what is this? Esau ran to him, to meet him, and embraced him. And it says he fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Twenty years. Twenty years of anger and bitterness and dread and animosity. All of that hard-heartedness being hardened over all of those years in that moment by the grace of God was just liquefied, and it poured out of their eyes in tears. And that is a manly response. 
Now, after Esau and Jacob see each other for the first time in those 20 years, and, and after their eyes clear up from all the tears, Esau gets to see the rest of the family, all of them. Verse 5. Now, when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? I kind of imagine Esau there saying that like a brother who got to meet his nephews and nieces for the first time. Who are these? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then the servants, this is Zilpah and Bilhah, they drew near. They and their children, they bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near, bowed down. And last, Rachel and Joseph drew near and they bowed down. Uh, we see the humility of the father trickling down to the rest of the family. Remember when Jacob prayed in the previous chapter, after hearing what Esau, that Esau and his small army were headed this, that way, Jacob prayed for God to deliver him safely, appealing to the promise that God had made. And in that prayer, Jacob acknowledged that he was not worthy, uh, quoting, not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that God had done for him. As Jacob now sees the Lord answering this prayer, as Jacob sees Esau softening toward him, and even sees Esau taking a greater interest in meeting the family than in getting any kind of revenge, Jacob is further humbled and reminded of God's grace. And therefore, he calls his children to Esau, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Which is what all children are, right? A gift from the Lord. And in this response, we see Jacob continuing to change and grow in godliness. Uh, That first showing that we saw of change and growth of his repentance was Jacob's change in order, putting himself out there first in front of his family. And now the second showing of change and growth, Jacob doesn't brag about his kids. Or in the next few verses we're going to see, he doesn't brag about his possessions or his wealth. Look what I've accomplished. He attributes all the good that he has to the kind grace of God. In verse 8, Esau said, What do you mean by all the company that I met? Meaning... What's with all the gifts you sent ahead of you? What is this? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Uh, Favor, that word being the noun form for the verb of giving grace. Giving grace. We, We would call grace unmerited favor. So I think what Jacob just said back to Esau is, I sent these animals ahead of me to make things right with you hoping that you'll forgive me. But Esau said in verse 9, I have enough, my brother. Esau didn't say, you punk. (laughs) He said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. That's a loaded statement. Jacob has some things. And Esau just said, keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, "Uh, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, if you're forgiving me, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you've accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Uh, Because, and here Jacob says it again, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. And it says, thus he urged him and he took it. He received it. 
And so some of this exchange of words, it might be a little confusing simply because of the social norms of the day, but, but what just happened here is Jacob has offered this gift to Esau to make restitution for what he took from Esau. Jacob is offering Esau a blessing. And remember, this gift was fit for a king. There were many men who inherited far less from their fathers than what Jacob has just given to Esau. And what was Esau's response? Esau tells Jacob, I already have enough. Esau is content. Keep what you have for yourself. In this way, Esau has just told Jacob, I forgive you. I forgive you. He's not going to hold it against him. There is no debt left to pay. He's forgiven. Jacob, though, offers the gift all the same, even calling it a blessing, a present. At this point, it's a gift of goodwill. Uh, Jacob got the blessing. Jacob got the covenant. And even though Esau didn't need any inheritance, the father's inheritance passed out this time, Jacob gives him this different blessing. This is a third evidence of Jacob's repentance, his change, his growth. Uh, He went out ahead of his family. He declared God's grace in his life. And now we see him seeking to make restitution with Esau at great cost to him for what he had done. I think it's worth acknowledging, too, that Jacob didn't simply hope that Esau was going to be able to get over this from afar. Jacob didn't simply tell someone else who was close to him that he might have stepped over the line 20 years ago or so and and hoped one day Esau would just get over it. Maybe if he ever comes to me, you know, I'd be willing to talk with him. And, and, uh, you know, really, though, uh, Esau probably should realize that it was his own impetuousness that made him so susceptible to deceit in the first place. Kind of like blaming Esau a little bit for what had occurred, as if it was just an event that occurred. No, that's not what happened here, is it? Jacob did wrong, and Jacob went to Esau. Jacob declared his need for Esau's favor. He asked for his favor, for his grace. And Jacob allowed Esau to declare that favor. That was Esau's call, wasn't it? Jacob allowed Esau to declare that favor, to forgive him. This is great instruction for us. A great reminder that reconciliation and forgiveness is a transaction between the parties involved in the wrongdoing. It takes both. It isn't a one-sided activity. It's not something you talk about with others behind their back. It's a conversation and an interaction between the parties involved or and or those invited by the parties involved for the purpose of aiding in the resolution. And the one who sinned is to go and to confess their fault. Uh, say it this way sometimes in counseling situations. Even if you are 1% at fault for the wrong, take 100% responsibility for your 1% and ask for forgiveness and let them forgive you. Seek to make things right. And the one who is sinned against is to grant forgiveness and ensure that the matter is settled. 
if someone sins against you, and if it's of a nature that needs to be made right, this is something that has to be settled. Then as Jesus says in Luke 17, if your brother sins and the context implies against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And we know the heart of that as Christians. We know Galatians 6.1 gives us a countenance that we go to that in humility and love for that person. Our rebuke isn't a slap uh, to the face verbally or something like that. It is a, it is a invested desire for the person's well-being to, to see them come to repentance and, and reconciliation. It is in love and for their good. And if he repents, forgive him. It's also interesting here that Jacob compares seeing the face of Esau to seeing the face of God. It's like, wow, that's kind of a step up, right? But in this way, back in verse 10, uh, Jacob said, I've seen your face. It's just like seeing the face of God and you accepted me. That last part is important there. You accepted me. In verse 30 of chapter 32, after the end of his wrestling match with God, it says, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means the face of God, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So here's the comparison. In both instances, Jacob came face to face with someone who had a right to justice, had a reason and a cause for justice because of Jacob's sin. And in both instances, he was given unmerited favor grace. Sounds kind of like the gospel, doesn't it? When we stand before God, if left to fend for ourselves, if if our record is put on display, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve judgment. But God, being rich in mercy while we were dead in our sins, while we were enemies at enmity with him, God loved us. And sent Christ to die in our place for our sin. Christ died and paid the sin debt that we owe. And God has put Christ's righteous record to our account. If you are here today, you've repented of your sin. You put your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You have been given this unmerited favor, this grace. And this standing. Being a child of God, standing in Christ in his grace. Being in that place, knowing your reconciliation has been provided, it wells up in us this love and generosity that then equips us to show grace to others when they sin against us. We can forgive because we have been forgiven. We love because he first loved us while we were yet sinners. And we can humble ourselves and and seek forgiveness from others when we sin against them, as fearful as that might be, thinking about other people talking about our sin. We can humble ourselves and seek forgiveness from others when we sin against them because our identity is already rooted in Christ, not in the opinions of man. When we fear others might not respond, well, that doesn't stop us because we already know who we are. We know that who we are has already been determined and guaranteed by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We are the children of God. And our end is secured. And therefore, 
with no need left to preserve our own selves. We would rather love that person that we sinned against and desire their genuine well-being. We would prefer that over than trying to preserve some phony version of our own well-being by maintaining a fictional public perception. It's fictional, right? Everybody says, oh man, that guy is such a great guy. False. (laughs) False. People don't need to think that I am some great, all-righteous person. I am a sinner saved by grace. That's who we are. And if I care more about people thinking that I am a great, all-righteous person, and if I'm fighting to preserve that public persona, then what kind of a false gospel am I preaching? It is okay for people to know that I'm a sinner and that I'm a sinner saved by grace. Because you know what they need to know? That they're a sinner who can be saved by grace. That's a lot better news than you'd better be perfect. Because we're already, that's already shot, isn't it? God loved me, God loved you, and sent Christ to die for our sin which he knows the depths of far better than we do. And and my increasing understanding of that great love will generate in me a love for others, even if that love for others corrects their faulty perception of who I am. Perfect love casts out fear. Uh, Now, this final section of, of chapter 33 is a little tricky. Jacob is growing, but he's still got some Jacob left in him. We, we get that. And it's hard to tell in these verses how much Jacob is being honest and how much he's resorting to his old ways. And Jacob has, has just seen God move in Esau's heart to grant forgiveness and reconciliation. Esau has accepted his gift. Things are cleared up. The brothers are on good terms. Praise the Lord. And then, <laughs> when Esau suggests something that Jacob knows he can't and shouldn't do, It looks like Jacob goes right into that habit, that sinful habit, just that fast. Verse 12 says, uh, then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I'll go ahead of you. Which is nice. I mean, Esau is inviting Jacob and all his camp to come to Sarah with him. In a way, that's really kind. Esau wants Jacob to live nearby. Let's be neighbors. How cool is that? Except that Sarah is not the promised land. This was not God's instruction. It was not God's promise to Jacob. And so Jacob needed to head the other direction. So Jacob's just going to be honest with Esau and tell him why he can't come, right? Not so much. Verse 13. But (laughs) Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Uh, Let my lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I'll lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my lord in Seir. This was actually like a half-truth, right? Or a half-lie, you know, whatever you want to say there. Uh, Because Jacob was right to suggest that moving at a fast pace would be detrimental to the kids and his herds. 
Although Esau has just received a, a bunch of new herds himself to take care of, so I'm not entirely sure why they would have been traveling uh, at different speeds. But Jacob also throws out this final comment, until I come to my Lord in Seir, which it seems like he doesn't truly intend to do. And so verse 15, Esau said, okay, fine, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. Uh, meaning, uh, let me leave some of my men to help you along and to help you find the way. His cell phone didn't have GPS out there, and he needed some guys maybe to help him find the way, and, and maybe Esau was looking for a little accountability as well. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And right there, I think Esau understands what's going on. He knows Jacob. I think he knows Jacob is struggling. And he, again, shows him favor and just lets it go. Esau chooses here not to take offense. This was a good day. (laughs) And Jacob has come a long way. And Esau has come a long way. So I think Esau here chooses to not let this become a whole new thing. And let's move forward. And so verse 16 says, Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob headed the opposite direction. He journeyed towards Sukkoth, uh, which, uh, as I said, is in the opposite direction, heading back towards the promised land. And he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Uh, therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkoth, and that word means shelters, just being named after uh, what Jacob built there as he prepared to go back to the promised land. In verse 18, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. On his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land in which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. And Jacob's now back in the promised land. He initially settles near Shechem, just like Abraham did in chapter 12. And he purchased land uh, in the promised land, just like Abraham did. And he built an altar near Shechem, just like Abraham did. So we have these parallels of this uh, forefather of Israel uh, coming into the promised land as his grandfather had. And the name he gives this altar, El Elohe Israel. And this name is translated in English as God, the God of Israel. And who is Israel? Jacob. Jacobus. That's the new game, new name that God just gave him. Uh, remember Jacob's vow back in chapter 28. It started out with this promise. Uh, this promise. Let me read it to you. Jacob said, if, or this if then, if God will be with me, if he'll keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. Jacob's back. And what does he name this altar? God, the God of Israel. Jacob is declaring in this name, the Lord is my God. Not just the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac anymore. The Lord, my God. And while Jacob might have felt like things were settled there in that relationship, his his relationship with God as he now willingly chose to, to follow through with this part of his vow... The idea of God being Jacob's God, it's not really new to us, is it? 
We get to see this from a narrative, like a helicopter view of, over the whole scene. It's not new to us. God told Jacob as much before, uh, before he ever left for Pat and Aram 20 years prior. God had said this to him. God had set his gracious choice on Jacob and told his parents so when he was even still in the womb. When he was in the womb. And we've gotten to see Jacob growing and changing progressively by God's grace through these chapters in Genesis. He's learning. He's still struggling. And still learning. That in his weakness, in total surrender to God, that's when he's strong. Because God is his strength. And today we got to see how that truth also affected his relationships. Even with his own brother, with whom he desperately needed reconciliation. If you're here today, and perhaps you heard the message of the gospel, maybe for the first time, uh, that God's love for us resulted in the offering of Jesus Christ at the cross as payment for your sin. That whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ alone, I plead with you, cry out to God today for his wonderful mercy and be reconciled to God. That is the reconciliation we all need first and most. Be reconciled to God. And church, I want to encourage you today. Is there someone whom you have wronged and not sought reconciliation? Is there someone who has sinned against you and things need to be made right and you have not been able to seek reconciliation? Uh, Please be encouraged and, and know this. Time does not heal all wounds. Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the healer. So pray. Pray. Ask God for his grace and help in seeking out reconciliation. There's a part of this that might be discouraging, but also encouraging to know that Jacob and Esau went 20 years in between the sin and the reconciliation. Just a moment in eternity. Yes? Let's look to God's word for guidance in this as we would seek reconciliation. Uh, Reach out to a trusted brother or sister. Uh, Reach out to your pastor for help, for encouragement, perhaps to rejoice with you as you rejoice or to weep with those who weep. To do this together. And by God's grace, as we're instructed in Romans 12, 18, church, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Remember, peace does not mean just ignoring a storm. Peace means resolving the issue. And as a church, looking at our lives and looking at our relationships through the lens of the gospel, may we walk, as it says in Ephesians 4, in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That little phrase there implies there's going to be something we need to bear, (laughs) doesn't it? We walk with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain 
the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being our peacemaker. In our sin, uh, we were at odds with you, at enmity with you. Whoever is not with you is against you, for you is against you. And God, while we were yet sinners, you showed your love in sending Christ to die for us in our place, that we could be reconciled with you. Thank you for making peace by the blood of the cross. God, I thank you that in this truth, knowing that you have first loved us, uh, knowing that you proactively uh, worked in your grace to reconcile us, that we can use that same uh, gospel love to go to others. And because we are forgiven, we can be forgivers. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a church and a people who love forgiveness and love reconciliation and love how uh, those uh, responses and how those uh, rebuilt and reconstituted relationships point people to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, we pray for your help and we pray for your grace that as we might go from here and, and perhaps as the Spirit works in our heart as we think of others who who we need to make things right with, God, give us grace to go and to love them and to seek reconciliation. And God, we pray for your good grace and your will that there would be reconciliation. And God, where that may not happen right away, that we would continue to rest in you and trust in you and believe in you and and and, and faithfully pursue you as you promised to continue to work in us, knowing that you promised to make all things new, that sin will one day be destroyed death gone, that you will be with your people and you will be our God. Lord, as long as we are here in this place and sin still remains, I pray, Lord, that we would, uh, as a church, love one another and seek this earnestly, this peace that we have in you. And Lord, to honor you and glorify you as we seek, as far as it depends on us, to live peaceably with all. Lord, please bless us in this as we go from here. Uh, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for the, uh, the joy of seeing uh, these young ones pre- profess their faith in Jesus alone for their salvation. Thank you for the honor and privilege that we have to be your children and to be gathered here today to worship you and to be named uh, followers of Christ. We thank you for all of these things and we pray them in Christ's name. Amen.